Welcome to the Resurrection Church Podcast. Resurrection Church exists for the glory of God and the joy of His people. If you're looking for a church in the upstate of South Carolina, please join us 9 and 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 900 North Main Street in Greer, South Carolina. We pray you'll be blessed by this message. Good morning. My name's Stan. I'm one of the elders here, and we're transitioning now into worship of the Word. Turn with me to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, we're going to start verse 45. And we'll read through verse 8 of chapter 20. As he entered the temple and began to drive, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us, By what authority do you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is the word of God for the people of God. Good morning, everybody. How many of you excited about Christmas? Yes, 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 excited about Christmas. How many of you are dreading the Christmas season? Anybody? Ah, you're afraid to raise your hand, aren't you? Uh, Before I dive into the text, let me just talk to you a little bit about Advent, uh, which is coming up. It'll it'll begin the the Sunday after Thanksgiving, four Sundays leading up to the Sunday before Christmas. We always observe Advent as a church, and we're going to do that again this year, and I'm really excited about it. Um, How many of you were here for Easter season this past Easter? Raise your hand. And you guys remember that what we did was we chose four texts in the Gospel of John, and each week leading up to Easter Sunday, we released the, week, the Sunday prior to the, to the next, um, the text, sermon text for the upcoming week, uh, a key verse from the text, a little paragraph to kind of help you dive into the text, um, as well as some extended reading that you could do at home leading up to Sunday uh, around the sermon text. We're going to do that for Advent this year, and all four of our Advent texts are going to be in the book of Isaiah. Uh, some very familiar passages to you probably. Uh, for example, the first two weeks, the, the first week of Advent will be in Isaiah 7. Uh, Behold, the virgin shall conceive uh, and give birth to a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Uh, the second week will be in Isaiah 9. Very familiar. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So those are the first two, and we'll roll those out each week, 
And I want to strongly urge you, read these texts and the extended reading around these texts at home, with your family, with your children. Uh, We're going to give you a paragraph each week that's going to help you understand the historical context into which these prophecies were given. Uh, Not to get too detailed yet, but the the prophecies in Isaiah, the the historical events that surround those are recorded for us in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. Uh, So we're going to try to help you get a sense of what's going on in Israel's history when God spoke these words through the prophet. And we want you to dive into that with yourself and with your family, particularly with your children each week, because our res kids and our res students are going to meet all four weeks of Advent. Okay, What we're going to do is we're going to have the kids and the students in the sanctuary with us for worship all the way up through the lighting of the Advent candle, and then we're going to have a dismissal where they will go to their classes to study the same text that we're going to be studying in here, okay? So moms and dads, grandparents, this is a great opportunity for you to do some serious discipleship with your kids through the Advent season. And Miss Mandy, I know, is going to provide some resources as well to help you parents with your young children with that. Does that make sense? Any questions? Okay. All right. So that'll begin in just, what, three weeks, Mary? Is that right? Yep. Three weeks. We'll start. So the the Sunday before, actually two weeks from today, we'll roll out the first uh, Advent text and information. Sound good? All right. Let me pray. This is the day that you have made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. Some days... I think, are harder than others to obey that, to do that. Some days that's easy. Sun is shining, the birds are singing, life is good, and we almost sing from the depths of our soul, this is the day you've made, and I will rejoice and be glad in it. And then there are other days where we wonder, is this the day? You've made, am I supposed to rejoice and be glad today? Help us understand that more, I pray, as we open your word in Jesus, as we consider both your actions and your words in the gospel of Luke this morning. Holy Spirit, help us, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. I have been so fascinated and caught up with the layers of thought and emotion that are in this event we know as the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. His last visit, his last entrance into Jerusalem before he goes to the cross. It's just so layered. For example, as he rides in to the city on a donkey, Luke tells us that the multitude of his disciples were doing what? They were shouting. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace and glory in the highest. Do you know that's actually a quote from Psalm 118? It's Psalm 118 is one of the Psalms of Ascent. There, there are several in the book of Psalms. The Psalms of Ascent were songs that the Jewish pilgrims would sing as they made the trek to the holy city for the prescribed feasts. Namely, Passover, which is what's going on here. 
They would sing these songs as they ascended the hill. And Psalm 118 is one of those psalms. So it's possible that some of Jesus' disciples, as they sing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that they're heralding Jesus as the king of the Jews. That they're, they're understanding, it's possible that some of these disciples understand that Jesus is the Messiah and he is the fulfillment of Psalm 118. It's also possible that some of Jesus' disciples are simply doing what they always do when they go to Passover. They sing Psalm 118 as they ascend the hill into Jerusalem. Now, they're probably doing that with a heightened sense of excitement and anticipation because, Luke says, of the mighty works that they had seen Jesus do, right? But regardless, Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 118. And the prophecy in Zechariah 9.9, Behold, your king comes riding on a donkey. What's Jesus doing? He's riding on a donkey, coming into town. He is the fulfillment. I want to read you a portion of some other verses in Psalm 118. Same psalm that these multitude of Jesus' disciples are shouting as he comes into the city. Psalm 118, verse 20. If you want to turn there, you can. Psalm 118, verse 20. Jesus is actually going to quote more of quote a portion of what we're about to read in next week's sermon in Luke. Psalm 118, verse 20. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous, everybody say the righteous. The righteous shall enter through it. Jesus is the gate of the Lord. What he's going to accomplish in Jerusalem is what is going, and we're going to read this in Isaiah over Advent, it's what's going to cause many to be counted righteous. How many of you know that's you? That's me. He is the gate of the Lord. He is Yahweh's salvation. He is the only way that unrighteous Wicked, evil, dead in their souls, people can be made alive and counted righteous. Amen? Verse 21, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Wow. Jesus is like, I don't know how many of you have had this opportunity, probably a lot of you, uh, husbands or fiancés, you, you go to the store and you pick out the diamond, right, for her. I did that. I toiled over it. Wondered how I was going to pay for it. But I found the stone, right, and it was in this little jewelry store in Franklin Springs, Georgia, with this little, little you know, jeweler that was just a loud mouth and loved to talk all the time. But he, he quickly learned that I just needed to have a moment to come in there, lean over the glass case, and just stare at that thing until I figured out how to pay for it. <laughs> Am I lying? Isn't that what I did? It's a precious stone. It's on her finger right now. I picked it out. I gave it to her. That's the sense here. Jesus is the precious stone that has been rejected. God forbid any of you have picked out a stone and she said no. Mary said yes. 
But this stone's been rejected. No, thank you. That, we don't want that. But nevertheless, the precious stone has become the chief cornerstone. Everything's going to be built on that stone. Wow. Do you, do you see the picture? Verse 23, this is the Lord's doing. Wow. It is marvelous in our eyes. In verse 24, you can quote it. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. This is the, what I mean by saying there's a layer of emotion here. Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and we looked at this last week. What does he do? He laments. He cries. He mourns. Why? Because Jerusalem has failed to recognize the time of her visitation. Salvation is here. Jesus is the gate of the Lord. He is the chief cornerstone, but he's been rejected. Why? Jesus said in his lament, these things have been, what? Hidden from their eyes. This is the Lord's doing, and isn't it marvelous? I mean, we, we, we step back and we go, what, why? Why this way? God, what are you doing? Why would you hide it from them? And yet, the psalm which Jesus is fulfilling declares, this is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice, I think, as much as Jesus is sad, he's glad. Boy, we are a peculiar people who follow this guy, aren't we? The Apostle Paul said, I'm always sorrowful and I'm always rejoicing. Like there is this weird, dare we say, schizophrenic nature to the Christian life where on the great days, on the good days, when the sun's shining and the, and the birds are singing and there's plenty of money and our health is good and our relationships are good and our kids are behaving themselves, this is the day the Lord has made. And then there are those days where it's right to cry. It's right to mourn. It's right to lament. Because this is sad. This is tragic. This is this is, not, this is not what we want. This is not what we hope for. But yet, there's also reason to say, isn't there? Every day, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us. God's plan is being executed to perfection. They, Jesus says that Jerusalem has not recognized the time of her visitation, and he gives the reason why. It's because 40 years from this point, 2 million Jews are going to die. 100,000 more are going to be taken captive. And Rome is going to destroy not only the temple, but the city of Jerusalem. And the temple's still not there. And why did that have to happen? It might be hard to get our heads around, but it's time for the temple order to come to an end. It's time for the sacrificial system, which is a type and shadow of what Jesus is ultimately going to accomplish 
When he goes into the real holy of holies, offers his own blood as a once-for-all sacrifice because God's plan from the get-go, from the get-go, has been to make his people righteous by grace through faith, not by works. And so, in the fullness of time, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. I imagine that it is with a mixture of both sadness and gladness that Jesus now goes into the temple, knowing this has been hidden from them, probably thinking to himself, This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. In verse 45, Luke 19, he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. What's going on in the temple? Well, on the positive side, It's Passover. People are arriving in the city for the feast. Listen, they're doing what God prescribed. They're bringing sacrifices, and they're remembering and celebrating how God delivered their ancestors from from Egyptian oppression, probably with some sense of hope that God was going to do the same thing again with Rome. But nevertheless, they're doing what's prescribed in the law of Moses. Sacrifice was good. At this point, the temple was good. The priesthood was good. This is not wicked. Passover is good. They're doing what is... So what's the problem? Why is Jesus causing a scene in the temple? It's because this is what mankind does left to our own devices. We take what is good and we mess it up. We twist it. We pervert it. We take things, even worship, and we turn it into an opportunity for selfish gain. Here's what's going on in the temple. And and, and let me just invite you to imagine a scenario. Imagine a poor farmer. Poor farmer, and he lives in Galilee has a family, he's raising sheep or whatever. And he goes out to his herds because it's, it's, it's Passover and, and he knows what's prescribed in the law and, and it, he has to make the trek to Jerusalem for the feast. And so he goes out among his sheep, maybe he's only got a couple or a few, and he picks out the very best one, the absolute best that he has. And then he loads up his family, his wife and his children, supplies, whatever they need to make the long journey up the hill. They sing the Psalms of Ascent as they ascend the hill into Jerusalem. Maybe they're even caught up in the hype around this Jesus who's riding into town on a donkey, singing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And and this farmer goes into the temple and he brings his little lamb, brings his sheep, whatever, presents it to the priest. It's the best that he has. It's all that he can afford. 
He's bringing his best to the Lord according to the law of Moses. And the priest or an elder in the temple looks at him and goes, "Um, that's not going to work. It's not good enough. You did your best, but it's, there's too many blemishes on it. And you can imagine how you feel, right? I mean, if I, if I get a mile down the road and I left something at home and have to turn around, I'm not a happy camper. Well, to make the hike back down to home to try to find another sheep, you're thinking to yourself, this is horrible. My kids are in tow. What am I going to do? And the elder, the priest looks at you and says, not to worry, we've got you covered. Like an overpriced concession stand at a baseball game, we've got little lambs and doves for sale. Yeah, they're marked up 400%, but you can buy them like a $10 Coke. And oh, you don't have Jewish currency? I know I said this farmer's from Galilee. Let's say he's from a non-Jewish area. You don't have Jewish currency? We can take care of that too. We can exchange it for you. And if you've ever been overseas anywhere, particularly in third world areas, don't exchange your money in the airport. Exchange rates are horrible. And not only that, but this little commercial enterprise in the temple was taking place in the court of the Gentiles, which was the only place that converts to Judaism, Gentile converts to Judaism, could go in the temple to pray and to worship. It's the only place they could go. It's an extortion scheme. It's got all the religious trappings, doesn't it? It's got all the right fanfare. They're doing all the right things. And oh, we're providing a service to the people. Yeah, at a bit of a cost, but this is what we have to do. It's an extortion scheme. You can imagine how disruptive this must have been, right, for Jesus to walk right up in there and start. I mean, Luke gives us a very tame version of this. I think it's Matthew's gospel that says Jesus made a whip, started turning over tables. He's causing a ruckus. Do you have a category in your mind for Jesus to behave this way? Imagine if he walked up in here. Imagine if he walked up in here and threw my laptop against the wall and started smashing guitars and tearing lights down and saying, y'all have missed it. This is not what my house is supposed to be about. This is essentially what Jesus is doing. Imagine if he walked up into your business or God forbid your home and did this. How would you feel? You know, it's interesting to me. He doesn't ask permission, does he? He kind of rolls up in there like he owns the joint. Verse 47. And he was teaching daily in the temple. I love that. It causes a major disruption and then parks right in the middle of it and starts teaching every day. He's He's not going in there causing a ruckus and then hiding He's out in plain sight teaching every day and the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men or the elders of the people were seeking to kill him, but they could not find, they they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his every word. Out of every word that comes out of his mouth, there's nothing they can do. He camps there and teaches continually in the temple every day. Wow. Wow. 
Now we turn the page to chapter 20, verse 1. One day he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. And the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things. Or who is it that gave you this authority? Let's, let's notice a couple of things first. Luke says he's teaching the people and he's preaching the gospel. Now, when you hear the phrase preaching the gospel, here, here's what I imagine typically comes to our minds is the, the, the message or the proclamation that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins so that we can go to heaven and not hell when we die. Is that what Jesus is preaching? You realize preaching is not the same thing as teaching. What I'm doing right now is not preaching. According to scripture, I'm teaching. I'm teaching believers. When, when, when Luke says he was teaching the people, I think that means he's teaching his disciples. When it says he was preaching the gospel, that means he's making a proclamation perhaps an inaugural proclamation to those who have not yet heard or don't yet believe. Of what? The good news, this is what we've learned in the Gospel of Luke thus far, the good news that the kingdom of God has come near. That's the good news Jesus is preaching. He's proclaiming it like a herald, like one who blows a trumpet and then makes an announcement. That's what preaching means is when we proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. In this case, he's announcing like he's done many times in this gospel. The kingdom of God has come near. It's breaking in. Teaching, I think, means he's telling more of his disciples about what it means and what it looks like to respond appropriately to the breaking in of the kingdom. He's preaching and he's teaching. So picture the scene. The Jews do this every year. How many of you excited about Thanksgiving? Yeah, we're just a couple weeks away. Christmas. We get excited about Easter and July the 4th. And you think about all the traditions that you have in your family around those kinds of holidays. I imagine Passover to be like all of those things rolled up into one, magnified by a hundred times. They do this every year, and Jesus has marched right up in the middle of that and totally disrupted everything. Overturned the tables, run out the money changers, and is preaching the good news of the kingdom that has come and teaching his disciples and all those who would have ears to hear about what it means to respond appropriately to the new and fresh thing that God is doing. If you put yourself in the scribes and the elders and the Pharisees' shoes, you can kind of sympathize with them a little bit. Like, if I'm in their shoes, I'm going, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? What right does he have to do this? This is, this is totally outside our norm. Sure, we knew. We were kind of extorting people a little bit, but who is this guy? Let's consider this. Is Jesus king? Is he Lord? Does he have the right to do what he's doing? Of course he does. We know that. It's not in question. 
But I just stopped and I thought about how we often talk about salvation. You hear this phrase all the time. I have made Jesus the Lord of my life. How many of you are saved? Did you make him Lord? Nobody makes him Lord. He just is Lord. You, you, you don't make him Lord over anything. And, and, and I'm not, listen, I know that so, this is, that's the modern church language to describe salvation. Have you made Jesus the Lord of your life? Have you invited him to be Lord of your life? And I'm not going to say, I would never say, that people, Christians, who talk that way and think that way aren't saved. I'm not saying that. But I'll tell you this. I think that kind of language is not only unbiblical, but it's toxic for us. Because if we think, either consciously or subconsciously, that we made him Lord, guess who's in charge? Guess what's going to happen, what's going to bubble up in us when he shows up in our lives, in our church, in our homes, in our businesses, and he starts flipping tables over because the wheels have come off. We might find ourselves asking, who gave you the right? I find Christians all the time. I see it in myself sometimes pushing back against the authority of the Lord Jesus because I'm not sure I want him to mess with that part of me. I'm not sure I want him to show up like he owns the joint right there because I'm comfortable. I've got my rhythm now. We don't get to pick and choose what areas of our lives he gets to exercise authority over. Here's, here's an example. This is totally a made-up example. Imagine a Christian who has been sinned against in some major way. Maybe their spouse cheated on them or betrayed them in some way. Maybe a, a co-worker or a close friend betrayed them in some significant way, and this Christian, this believer, genuinely loves the Lord. But because of the hurt and pain caused by that betrayal, they sink into a mire of bitterness and resentment and anger. But then a brother or sister in the Lord, or maybe an elder in the church, shows up in that person's life and says, listen, I know you're hurting, but I just want to encourage you and remind you because I love you. You need to obey the instructions of our Lord Jesus and depend on the Spirit to walk in forgiveness. Those kinds of loving confrontations are necessary in the body of Christ, are they not? Lord knows, I certainly want you to do that for me. I certainly want you to be able to do that for each other, right? We're, we're to 
We're to be united in the faith and love one another enough to do what Paul said, which some, this, this verse gets quote, misquoted a lot all the time. Speak the truth in love. Look at the context of that. That's not necessarily talking about a pleasant conversation. Speak the truth in love. I know you're hurting, but you need to walk in forgiveness. I don't want to oversimplify hurt and betrayal and how difficult forgiveness can be at times. But the question is worth asking. When, when the word of God and the instructions of the Lord Jesus are presented to us in some of the most difficult times of our life, how do we respond? Do we respond with... By what authority? Who gave you that authority? Who are you? I'm not sure I want to hear that. Or do we respond this way? Oh, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. By what authority are you doing these things, Jesus? Here's how he responds. Verse 3. He answered them, I, I also will ask you a question. Donnie, I miss Donnie so much. Donnie used to say this all the time in the elders' meetings. He'd say, I love how Jesus answers a question with a question. Didn't he say that all the time, Andy? This is one of the classic examples. I'll ask you a question now. Tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? <laughs> What's he doing? Is he being coy with them? Is he, is he trying to dodge the question? I don't think so. I think he is brilliantly checking to see if they can have an intelligent conversation about authority. Because look at their response. Verse 5, And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe, John? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. Two things come to bear in their reasoning. Number one, their, their primary concern is not Jesus' authority, it's their own in the eyes of the people. That's what they're after. Secondly, what comes to bear is that if they're unwilling to acknowledge the authority of John, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for Messiah, for Jesus, there's no way they're going to be able to acknowledge the authority of Jesus. Listen, Jesus is the Son of God. He is God. He's the second person of the triune God. He has authority because he's God. But I don't even think Jesus is expecting these scribes and Pharisees and elders to come that far. I think he's simply looking at them and are pointing out, exposing in them, that if they can't acknowledge that the ministry of John the Baptist, the front runner of Messiah Jesus, was a God thing, they're never going to be able to acknowledge that what Jesus is up to is a God thing. Do you see that? So therefore, we can't have an intelligent conversation. And here's how, so they, so they, 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 
reason in their minds and conclude that, oh, there's really nothing we can say to this. And so they say, we don't know. And then verse 8, Jesus says back to them, well, then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So brilliant, isn't he? I can't help but think back to the parable of the ten minus. Remember the nobleman? The authority of the nobleman was not in question. He exercised his authority over his servants and over the kingdom that he inherited, regardless of the fact that the citizens of that kingdom said, we don't want you to reign over us. That didn't matter. Neither is it going to matter in the case of Jesus. He is Lord. He is Lord of our lives. And it's not because we made him Lord. Listen, even if you're not a believer here in this room or watching online, he's Lord over you. And he will show up and overturn tables. He will disrupt our lives, both for the believer. Now, for the believer, when he disrupts, I'm going to lean on Hebrews. He disciplines those he loves. But for the unbeliever, You must heed the words of Romans. The wrath of God is being revealed against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their nature suppress the truth. The gospel of Jesus Christ is is nothing less than a change in nature, a change of heart. That even that, and this is one of the things that I sometimes struggle to get my head around, is that even with my change of heart, I can take the good things of God and mess them up. That even when I teach his word, sometimes I can get so caught up in how well I performed. Y'all handle that? The temptation. I told, I told the elders, I still, every now and then, it's, it's not nearly as frequent as it used to be, but I still have these thoughts on Sunday morning before y'all get here. I wonder if anybody's going to show up today. Why? Because I'm thinking about me. And I have to repent. I have to say, God, uh, disrupt my norms, overturn my tables. And sometimes he does. Sometimes he does that in some of the most simple and kind ways. Like, I preach a sermon and I feel like, that was the worst thing. I've got to go get a job at Walmart. No offense if you work at Walmart. And then someone will come up to me afterwards and say, that sermon changed my life. I'm like, are you you, you sure? You got a fever? That was terrible. No, the Lord used it. He's Lord. He's doing what he does. Sometimes he shows up in ways that are so pleasing to us, aren't they? There are days when when he shows up into our world, into our home, into our family, into our church, into our business, into our community. And it's almost like it just bubbles up 
and spills out of our mouth. This is the day the Lord has made. I taste his kindness and his goodness and his love and his grace. And it's so wonderful. And it's right for us to say that. It's right for us to rejoice in that. Do you realize what Jesus has done in the temple and what he's doing with these chief priests and elders and scribes is also an act of kindness because their worship in the temple has come off the rails and they're missing the time of their visitation. And he is exposing the heart issues that apart from an inward work of the spirit are gonna always lead to taking the good things of God and twisting them and perverting them into something that is so far from the heart of God. And when he does that kind of thing, do we sing on those days also? This is the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. You know, what if the election on Tuesday goes in the exact opposite direction of how you want it. What are you going to sing on that day? What if calamity visit your, visits your life and, and from your perspective at least it's, it's no fault of your own? Or what if sin in your heart and life gets exposed in love by a Christian brother and sister, what if in some way or another Jesus shows up in your life and starts overturning tables? You know what I found is a temptation to conclude in those moments wrongly? Is that somehow what's happening is outside the scope of his lordship. When global pandemics hit, that's not outside the scope of his lordship any more than the little circumstances that visit our lives personally. He's Lord. And regardless of what happens on any given day when the sun comes up or when it goes down, the cry of the Lord's people is and should be, this is the Lord's doing. And it's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us, at, at Resurrection Church, here's what we say we're about. The glory of God and the joy of his people. That, sound, that sounds like a good goal, right? You on board with that? I am. Otherwise, we wouldn't put it on the website. For the glory of God and the joy of his people. Do you know what? If we don't acknowledge the absolute lordship of Christ over everything, we're fooling ourselves. We're fooling ourselves. How can we have joy? Joy that doesn't According to Psalm 16, doesn't lack anything. It's full. It's perfect. Joy that is our 
strength. How do we have that kind of joy? We have that kind of joy because he's Lord. And we didn't make him Lord. He just is Lord. He owns the joint. And by his grace and his mercy, he's made that known to us. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might be adopted as sons. That's who we are. And for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, all things are working together for our good, for our conformity to the image of his son so we can count it all joy when we face trials and tribulations of many kinds, knowing that the testing of our faith produces perseverance. And when perseverance has had its full effect, you will be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. Do you feel the joy that just as you rehearse that? He's Lord. And every day, every day, we can sing. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. This is the Lord's doing. And it's marvelous in our eyes. The Lord Jesus, turn over the tables. Disrupt our norms where we have come off the rails. And call us back to true worship, to worship in spirit and in truth, because you alone are worthy. You deserve the glory. And in giving you the glory is our joy. Amen? Father, we submit ourselves, we posture ourselves in submission not to make you Lord, but to declare that you are, in fact, Lord. You're Lord over our lives. You're Lord over our families. You're Lord over our businesses. You're Lord over our schools. You're Lord over our work. You're Lord over our church. You're Lord over our community. You're Lord over this country, and you're Lord over the world. And I don't know what tomorrow holds. I don't know what Tuesday holds. And I don't know what next year and the years that are ahead of us will hold, what will come about and what will take place. But I know you have proclaimed the good news and we have heard, you have given us ears to hear, the kingdom of God has come near. And we have been bought and adopted and ransomed and transformed and made new and made alive to be a part of your glorious everlasting kingdom. So Lord, continue to teach us how to respond appropriately to that. And sometimes when you teach us, you're going to overturn tables and sometimes just things are going to happen in life and in the world that aren't going to make sense to us. But I pray that we would sing every day this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. And sometimes, Lord, we know 
we're not going to be able to do that in our own strength. We're not going to be able to reason our way into that kind of gladness that sometimes is going to have to run alongside our sadness. But we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would stir in us that joy that is our strength. That joy that doesn't shove sorrow into the corner somewhere, but it chaperones our sorrow and it, it runs alongside it and it undergirds it so that as we weep, we also laugh. As we cry, we also rejoice because of our hope in you. Let that be true of us, even as we scatter from this place into our neighborhoods and schools and businesses. Let it be true of us that we would be people who sing, this is the day you've made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. And We thank you for this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. I love you. I'll see you next week. We hope you've been blessed by this message from Resurrection Church. Please visit resfaith.com. That's R-E-Z-Faith.com, where you can find more sermon archives, learn more about our church, and find a place to give to our ministry. We'd be glad to hear from you. Drop us an email at connect at resfaith.com.